Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 3 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we focus on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. The theme of season three is the road to Doha. We will be exploring issues relevant to the LDCs ahead of the fifth UN conference on the least developed countries in Doha, Qatar in 2022. Today, we are coming at income inequality from a different angle, that of the 1%. Our guest today is Thomas Handler, partner in Handler Thayer LLC, and quote, one of the most respected tax and estate attorneys in the world, end quote, according to Private Wealth Magazine. Mr. Handler is an advanced planning attorney focused on implementing and integrating legal structures for high net worth individuals and family offices. He is an expert in the analysis, design, and implementation of domestic and international business planning, estate planning, asset protection, family office, and tax planning strategies. Tom, it's a pleasure having you with us today. Esther, it's great to be with you as well. Thanks so much. Please tell us about yourself. Where are you from? What did you study? And what led you to found Handler Thayer? My family lived on the north side of Chicago, not too far from Wrigley Field. So I was born in Chicago, uh, grew up here until grammar school. My folks moved to a south suburb just off the southeast corner of Chicago. Spent my grammar school and high school time out there. Went down to Champaign, Illinois for school, the only college I wanted to go to. And then as I finished, I came back to Chicago and uh, worked for a bit and then went to law school full-time while I worked full-time. And in the process of working, it became pretty clear to me the direction that I wanted to go, but it had underpinnings many years earlier. I was in high school, in high school, perhaps junior year, when my father had a terrible disappointment at his job And he worked for one company for 43 years, which is rather extraordinary. Was a top 10 in the world global company. He started in the mailroom with no education, worked his way up to be the number two guy at the flagship company of this giant global conglomerate. And he had a heart murmur, ended up in the hospital. While that he was in, his boss, the CEO, retired. And they said, can you take the job? He said, well, wait till I get out, make sure I'm okay. I'll give you the answer as soon as I can. And when he got out, the job that he worked his entire life for, and my dad worked late hours, get home seven, eight o'clock at night, worked every Saturday. And he's very talented, very bright, Eagle Scout, decorated for valor in the Korean War five times, valedictorian of his high school, valedictorian of his grammar school. He's that guy. And this company, 140,000 employees or more, they give out one distinguished employee award per year. And my dad got it. He's on the front page of the Tribune business section. They fly him to Hawaii, gets a big ring. My mom gets this big necklace and we're thrilled. And that happened maybe three, four months before this. And he comes out and they'd given his job away to a subordinate that rather than fire, he transferred him to another division. And I worked there. I was a union teamster. I was loading trucks in this cold storage facility killing myself while my dad was up in the office. And I'd met this guy who I thought was without substance, empty suit, not very talented, sort of a braggadocious, bad joke telling, thumping, cigar smoking guy. I had no respect for him. So, and neither did my father, who's very quiet, humble, 
opposite of this guy. And my dad comes back and that's his new boss. And I couldn't sleep that night. I watched it tear the wind from his sails. He was never the same after that. And I saw that happen. I couldn't sleep that night. I just stared at the ceiling going, this is so unfair. How could this possibly happen? And that's when I resolved, I'm never going to be in that boat. I'm going to run my own shop. I'm in a position where I can't be taken advantage of. I'm not going to work 40 years of my life only to be disenfranchised by other people. So it was a pretty clear call. So I was an accounting major with a psych minor. I love the psych, but there's no jobs in psychology at, least at the time. Like one in 26 people got jobs. Accounting, everybody gets jobs. And Illinois has been the number one accounting school in the world for 75 of the last 85 years. So a highly prestigious program. It was incredibly difficult. They flunked out over half the class. And with that background, you can tear apart a balance sheet. You understand finance. It was a great, great, very difficult, but great experience. And it made law school far easier because of that background. Of course, working as an accountant allowed me to pay my way through law school and still eat, even though I took out the maximum loans I could possibly get. I got no grants, no help, nothing from the government whatsoever. So I just took out loans That's an amazing story, Tom. Thank you for sharing it. And I think it's very interesting for our global audience to see that there are victims of globalization and market forces in every country. Because in the least developed countries where we work, we certainly see many people feel that they are helpless in the face of decisions by big corporations. This is your father in the United States, a United States citizen facing the same kind of impact of these big global decisions. So thank you very much for sharing that story. So You've told us about a bit of how hard it was to get your qualifications and what you did to get ready. What were some of the other challenges you faced in establishing your business? Probably the biggest hurdles were that no one in my family had graduated college. No one had any connections. No one understood how the world worked or how complicated business is or what it takes or the hours required. And so with no capital, no connections, no influence and no hope, what do you do to start? And literally just start with no clients and no capital is very difficult in itself. My elderly grandmother, who probably had $50,000 to her name, immigrated to the US when she was 13 years old, didn't speak English, graduated the third grade, and let me 30,000. She said, your grandfather would have wanted you to have this. So I hope you can pay me back. But that started the firm. And to build a reputation to be able to meet people, to have the credibility to get hired, particularly because I was young. I was at a law firm only for about six, eight months, very short period of time. And their compensation system was the opposite of meritocracy. So it wasn't working for me. The hardest worker who puts in the most hours, who accomplishes the most, is typically badly underpaid and not well taken care of. It's just not fair. Someone's working half as much and not producing as much and didn't publish an article and didn't write a white paper on the computer system and didn't bring in clients, shouldn't be paid the same as someone that did all those things. So it's troublesome to see that that's how a lot of big firms work. It's got a fixed ranges and the bonuses don't come in until farther down the road. It was really meeting people and getting people to hire me. I was fortunate that I was in a wonderful fraternity that I joined because I wanted to play sports and the dorms were not where those people were hanging out. These people were drunk all the time and not very serious students for the most part. I'm like, this is not what I had in mind. And I joined a fraternity that had a beautiful house, far nicer than the dorm. And their grade requirement was significantly higher than the universities. And you couldn't be a member. You couldn't play sports for them. You couldn't go to their parties. Big focus on scholarship and leadership. 
And they talked about these people will be your friends for life and alumni mentoring and leadership training. And I really thought nothing of it. I thought that was all nonsense. They were just talking to get me to join. And after joining for sports and parties, I got in there and realized, wow, this is a serious organization. Our community service is unbelievable. We raised money for charity. We delivered Christmas trees to hundreds and hundreds of poor families at Christmas that we taken from the dorms and fraternities, cleaned up park districts, shoveled snow for old people, meals on a wheel. I mean, you name it. And an alum, Sam Skinner, was the United States White House Chief of Staff. And coincidentally, our resumes begin the same. His ends far better than mine. But he went to Illinois. He was the captain of the swim team. He was the president of our fraternity. He was the highest ranking officer in the, in the military cadets. And he went on to get his law degree at DePaul, where he was on the law review. And then he ended up being the White House Chief of Staff. And he was the U.S. Secretary of Transportation prior to that. And he gave a leadership speech to about 600 undergraduate leaders. And it's the first time he'd ever heard this. I never heard it from my parents or my church or my school or coaches. And he said, you are the best and the brightest. You are talented. You got into these pristine universities. You got in this top fraternity. If you don't do service, who's going to? This isn't something you do to be nice. This is your responsibility. And when do you think you should start? It's difficult now because you got your job, you're studying, you're working hard, your fraternity, you're very busy. Well, do you think it's going to be easier when you start your real job? How about when you get married? It's going to get simpler. Then. How about when you have children? How about after children graduate? When is the right time to begin service and give back to society? And he said, it's today. He goes, it's today. It's tomorrow. It's every day. It's your obligation. This is what you have to do to those who've been given gifts, much is owed. And it was a brilliant speech. I actually got a copy of it and I saved it because it was so moving to me. And that's what this organization did. So it was a wonderful experience. So I tried to meet as many people as I could. I had helped a lot of law students through my classmates, through the financial courses like corporate finance, taxation, estate planning, uh, uniform commercial code, commercial paper. I'd already studied those things as an accountant. And so they were easy for me. So I helped all these students. And when I got out, they all hired me. I mean, like 30 of them. Some of them were children from wealthy families. They went back and they brought their parents' company in. Others went to small firms who didn't have good tax or estate people. They gave me work. Others hired me individually. A bunch of my fraternity brothers hired me. One guy hired me, said, you know, I never liked you. You're way too serious, way too intense, but you're smart and you work hard and I trust you. You're my lawyer. I said, look, if you don't want to go out and have a beer with me. That's okay. I'll do a good job for you. And he's still my client. So I got very lucky to build up a small base, but the first year was extraordinarily difficult. I worked over 3,800 hours, which is two full-time jobs here in the States. And I pulled 18 all-nighters, which meant I worked 24 hours, 18 times my first year, 19 times my second year. And so the hours were unbearable, to be frank. I had no life, wasn't getting a lot of sleep. It was very, very difficult. And by the time you build up your reputation, it's 10 years down the road and you've got to do everything right. You've got to be on the bar committees. People need to see your work, read what you're capable of reading, hear your thoughts or inventions. You need to publish. To get into the spot where your technical abilities will set you apart so that the market you want, which for me was mostly business owners and affluent individuals, the more complicated their matters, the better I was able to handle them. And so people who have property in five countries and six states will often find us. People who have esoteric tax or estate issues or ask protection, they will find us because a lot of people don't do the odd things we do. So it was very difficult and very slow to start. 
And I've averaged over 3,200 hours per year my entire career, right? So too much, too many hours, but in effect, you work longer hours than most slaves. And that's what many business owners end up doing. Everybody sees these people when they're 60 and go, oh, these guys, they got lucky, right place, right time. Yeah, they went bankrupt twice. Their first wife left them. Their health is not good. The sacrifice these people make before they make it. And then everybody looks at them when they're 60 and say, oh, someone dropped a pot of gold in their backyard. And that almost never happens. If somebody won the lottery, they rarely die with the money. They lose it. Somebody got rich quick. It's not going to last very long. And this, with the wealth data supports that. So it's very, very difficult to do. And I became very sympathetic to these people because I lived it. It's no fun to work a month and kill yourself. And at the end of the month, you can pay all your people. There's nothing left to pay yourself. That's a really difficult experience. And then you understand capitalism and entrepreneurship and risk. And it's a painful thing to learn when your house is getting close to the point where they're going to foreclose on it. They're already taking pictures of it. They're ready to foreclose on your house because you're working very hard and still not making any money. So we're very fortunate that I never went under, but we had some very lean years early in the going. And fortunately, my wife worked. She was an accountant as well and worked at a big accounting firm. And that barely kept us afloat, but we got through it. That's an amazing story, Tom. So thank you for sharing that with us. We know many entrepreneurs listen to this podcast and we're supporting many entrepreneurs in many countries. And I think you see consistent themes across your story and the story of anyone who starts a business, risk, the work required, the absolute dedication and complete commitment, and the fact that you started your business with not very much money. And it was a friends and family round from your immigrant grandmother. I love that her $30,000 got you on your path. She must have been so proud of your success. Well, I'm sure she was, but I was most moved when she said, I had a hard time thinking about this, but your grandfather would have done this for you. And I was very fond of both my grandfathers who spent a lot of time with me. And again, no education, no capital, nobody spoke English. And they, they muddled through, they ended up with houses. They're very modest, but they own their own home, which is quite an achievement coming over as a teenager without speaking a language or having any. And they had it far more difficult than I ever had. By ginormous measures, my English was just fine. I didn't have that problem. So they overcame obstacles that I never dreamed of. And I think it's very difficult for anyone that immigrates. And over time, regardless of the population, you're not treated well, you're discriminated against, right? So no Italians need to apply, no Germans need to apply, no Swiss need to apply, no Catholics need to apply. Everybody who came here had a tough route and they were discriminated against. And it's just the thing that people didn't know them, people didn't trust them, people are wary if you're not like them. And so they didn't know what to make of these people. And that goes on till today. It's not systemic. It's not an intentional thing that people do. It's just most populations tend to hang out with their own kind as a general rule. I'm not like that. I grew up in a very diverse school, so I just never developed that feeling. It's not how my family was, but that's how most immigrants get treated until they get here for a time. It's becoming less so every day because now there's so many populations here. It's far less of an issue, but it's still very difficult because the language skills issue and just knowing the time and having contacts. You don't have as many friends that can help you. The list goes on. It's, it's challenging. Absolutely. And I think we see with our populations, with migration, forced migration or voluntary, that starting over in a new country is hard for everyone everywhere. So I'd like to come back to something that you were saying about the entrepreneur and how hard they work and the idea of transmitting both values and wealth. So there's a Chinese saying that wealth doesn't last three generations which is to say the first generation makes the money, the second generation inherits it, and the third spends it or loses it. 
in your work with wealthy families, have you found this to be generally true? Absolutely. And it's interesting. I'm familiar with that quote. And there's a version of that quote in about 15 different languages. In Britain, they'll say shirt sleeves are shirt sleeves in three generations. So statistically, and this is, and whenever I quote a stat, it's with a confidence level of 90% or above. I don't throw out garbage research. I'm tired of what I see in the media of just complete nonsense with a 10% confidence interval, a sample of 20 people, and they tout it as fact. I'm like, that's completely irresponsible. And unfortunately, not many people have had statistics, have no idea what that means, which is problematic in itself. But to take completely nonsense data, which isn't worthy of toilet paper, and to start quoting it to stand for a premise is intellectually dishonest, inappropriate, just off the chart. And that's what happens out there. So right around 10% of wealth makes it to the third generation. So if you think about that, it follows cycles. When you're you have a moving passion to no longer starve or to be able to have something. But it always killed me that I didn't have a car. It's painful for a young man not to have a car. You can't get to work. You can't pick up a girlfriend. You can't go out on a date unless she's willing to walk around with you. It's just a bad spot to be in. And I got to school and you know, I've got fraternity brothers with three series BMWs and I've got a crummy old 25 BMWs and I've got a crummy old 25-year-old bike. You begin to go, this is bad. And the wanting safety, security, food, and then things, clothing, whatever, is a really base need. And when you don't have them, you're willing to work like a dog to try to get those things and not feel that way. And when you've got other people depending on you, it's even worse because you want to feed your children, take care of your sister, take care of your parents, whatever it is. So that motivation forces people to work really hard and lo and behold, that they do better. And then the Next generation's pretty close. They do okay. By the third generation, they forgot what it was like to be starving again. They've never missed a meal. They never wanted for nearly as much. And it's all relative. doesn't matter if you're a billionaire and you go down to 10 million, or if you're worth 100,000, you go down to 5,000. It's the same feeling either way. And that motivation to feel secure, Maslow's need hierarchy, to feel the most important basic needs. Until you have those covers covered, almost nothing else matters. That's your thrive. And I think that people who make it quickly, professional athletes, although it's not that quick, and it's a lifetime of commitment, they work very hard, but they don't appreciate how difficult it is to make that money until their career is over. And we've represented hundreds of hundreds of these people at very high levels, starting quarterbacks, three of the top 10 scores in the history of the National Basketball Association, hockey players, globally prominent golfers. The ones that we currently still represent are responsible. They've got foundations, they're giving to charity, they're saving their money, they're doing it right. Most of those guys don't. And so within six months of their career ending, they're broke. They bought too big of a house, they now can't afford it. The wife divorces them, takes half of the person's stuff. It's just tough duty. And the same thing's true of some of the actors and actors. They made it very quickly and so they don't appreciate it. How does Willie Nelson and Michael Jackson go bankrupt? It's almost inexplicable to me. And the answer for one is, well, you try to build Disneyland by yourself in your own backyard. That's kind of tough to do. And you've got the other extreme, the Robert Wagners, the Merv Griffins, who became zillionaires because they save every dime and they're smart businessmen. So it's the same sort of thing. It's hard to hang on to. And when you don't appreciate the importance of stewardship of wealth, what are you going to do for society that the French saying, noblesse oblige? that it's up to you. If none of that is taught and passed on to the next generation, they don't learn about who you are, your culture, what you did to get there, what your grandparents did. 
I'm very determined to always share with my children. And my grandfather served in the army. They could barely speak English. And they just left Austria, where their relatives were conscripted into the German army. And they're fighting people who are more like them than us. But that's what it was. That's what you did as an American. That's what was required. And they were proud to do it. And I think it's very difficult for people to follow and understand what that that means and what those needs are. So if the children, grandchildren, family are told the story, here's who we are, here's who we got here. Let me show you a picture of your grandparents' house. It won't believe it. It's the size of a garage. And here's the lot. The lot fits inside my circle driveway twice. And we thought it was great. We didn't know any better. I went to drive by the houses I lived in. I'm like, oh my God, I had no idea how small they were. Look at that. That's a tiny. Your perspective is quite different. And again, we were fine. We weren't hungry. We were okay. But it's not like being a seventh generation American. But if you don't pass on the history of how you got there, who you are, what your family believed in, and what the goals and what the moral fiber is behind where you got, then it's meaningless. They think money grows on trees. They don't appreciate it. So I think a lot of it is about education and trying to purposely make sure people understand what it means to steward and inherit wealth and make a difference with it, as well as take care of your family. It's hard to do. It's very hard to do. So this is one discussion I've had with many friends and in many parts of the world, from the Middle East to Asia to here in the United States, where the first generation is always the hungriest, because as you say, they're coming from the least and they have that compulsive desire to work like a slave, as you were saying. But then the next generation doesn't have to work like a slave, so why would they? right? That nobody's going to be that hungry. So we had a friend who was very successful, who grew up remembering what it was like to be on the welfare line. And he said, my child's never going to have that experience. But his child didn't learn to walk until too late or until later than most kids because he had three nannies and no one would ever let him fall down. So he's like, what am I doing to my child giving him three nannies? And he's never, ever going to work as hard as I did, right? So on, on one hand, you want to give your children all the material benefits you didn't have. On the other hand, there's no possibility that they will be as hungry as you were. So what have you seen as the most effective ways that families can ensure that their values and their work ethic are passed down along with their wealth? Well, one of the sources of family wealth is your history, your integrity, who you are, how you live your lives, right? And that piece needs to be shared as much as everything else. You you want to share education, experience, history, business knowledge, techniques, how you save your money. I love the little, there's a little four quadrant bank. It's a wonderful tool for children. And it's clear, blue clear, and somebody patented, but one is for long-term savings. That's money you never spend. The other is for short-term savings. I want a new bike. The other is for taxes and the other one's for social capital, right? So government's going to take a big chunk of what you have. And some of this has to be for other people. So you're going to give it to your church or you're going to give it to a charity, but that's your money. It's not really all yours. You're going to find that half of it is going to the government and charity. And that's just the reality of it, right? That's where most people are in the U.S. or worse. It might be 60% going, 70% going elsewhere, depending on what state you reside in. But learning that lesson, the first time a child learns, it's not all about them. Shouldn't be when they get their first W-2 and say, where'd all my money go? It went to Social Security. It went to Medicare, Medicaid. Obamacare, state tax, federal tax, unemployment, workers' comp. And they're, they're horrified. I remember my children going, I knew there were taxes, but what is all this stuff? And so it's an important education for them to learn how this all works. And I think families either don't share enough or they share too late. 
the wisest families, I think, share pretty early and simple things like you get an allowance and if you don't do your chores, you won't be getting an allowance, right? Pure and simple. And you're not going to be rewarded for not doing what we ask, whatever that is to pitch in, but having them pitch in, having them join you at the holidays for charity work, go to the soup kitchen and have them there with you. Even if they can't do much, even when they're little, they can see what you're doing. My wife is on the board of Northwestern Settlement House, which is like a Hull House, off the street club for kids, battered women, just wonderful programs. And it's a big organization. It was, I think it was the second Hull House after Jane Addams Hull House, that same type of organization. And when the kids would go to those places and see nobody there looked like us, nobody there dressed like us, nobody there acted like us, and they see their mom and dad doing things, even though they're not old enough to help yet, they get that sense. And when they get older, then they do help. And so I think parents have to be tough on the children. And tough means saying no periodically. I remember my son said, I just turned 16 and my friends, these guys got all these new cars. What car am I going to drive? And I said, whatever car you can afford. And I said, the problem is you can't afford a car, you can't afford the gas, and you can't afford the insurance, and you can't afford to park in my driveway. And I'm going to show you just what that costs. So I laid it out and goes, here's what that plot costs. It costs way more than the car, by the way. So you just need to understand there's not a chance of you doing this. So if you're in our good graces, then you get to use our cars. And he had an incident. His mother asked him during the week to run some errand for her. And he said, I'm kind of busy. I can't. I got swimming. I got class. And he didn't do it. And on Saturday, he asked me, can I borrow one of the cars? I said, I'm kind of busy. I don't think I can find the keys. He said, what, what do you mean? And I said, well, I understand your mother asked you to help and you didn't have time to help her. I said, I, I don't think I've got time either. So he disappeared for about 20 minutes and came down angry. I could see he was angry. And he said, so let me get this clear. Every time I don't do something you want, you're going to hold these car keys over my head. I said, yes, precisely. I said, so until you can pay for your own car, your own insurance, your own gas and to park at my house, those are the rules. And that was the last time we ever had an incident with that kid ever, all the way along Grateful, did the right thing, always studied, got great grades, very hardworking, just that kid. It was the easiest kid on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. And we were very clear with them by the time they got to high school, they begin to see things. They say you're form K1. They realize they have trusts. They realize they have statutory accounts in the United States that belong to the children. And they get the money when they're 18 or 21. If you don't do something, which of course you do, you roll it over to trust, so they can't get it. Because you don't want to give a 21-year-old or 18-year-old a bunch of money, good things are not likely to happen. So when they see those numbers, you need to sit them down and say, look, you've got these things, but I want to be very clear. It's not really your money. It's technically in your name. The UGMAs are still in my estate. The trusts are not in my estate. So the way I've structured this, I have almost complete control over it. I can vote it. I can spend that money. I can reinvest it. I can invest in companies I own. I can pay myself a salary for running it. I'm not doing any of those things. So I'm, this money is for you, but you're not going to get it when you're young. By the time you get this money, you're going to be sold. It's not going to matter. So if you don't want to study, don't study. You don't want to work hard, don't work hard. You don't want to live your life prudently, don't. Because you're going to live your life, not mine. But if you like around us, you like going to your wonderful schools that I could never dream of affording. You like going to your camp. You like going on vacation. I didn't know what a vacation was. That's not what families did, right? They didn't take vacations. I didn't know what summer camp was or what a country club was. I'm like, what? A club I can't get into and all you do is play golf there and it's 400 acres and there's only 300 people who get to go. I mean, how does that work? So all this stuff was a complete mystery to me. But when the children understand it's about you, I said, you're going to live your life. 
And I got what's called a family bank concept, which is a family holding company in a virtual family office. And what it does, it's there to empower the children, but not to entitle them. And so I said, look, you want to go to grad school? I'm going to pay for your college. I'm going to pay for your wedding. Grad school's on you, car's on you. How? I'm not buying anything else, but I'll make you a loan for school because I think that's a good cause. If I like your house, maybe I'll make a second mortgage. You want to start a business? You want me to be your lender? You want me to be your banker? You want me to be a bondholder? You want me to be your partner? I want to see the business plan. I want to meet your partners. I want to see it all. I'll tell you how this is going to work. So it's an opportunity to let the money help the children without entitling them. They've got to pay it back, which means it's then available for the next generation. And they're going to live their life. And again, by the time they get any money from me, they're likely to be 50 or 60. So by then they should be a done deal. But families often don't tell the children anything when they're in their 50s and 60s. The time to find out from your multi-billionaire parent that you're going to get a half million dollars and everything's going to charity is not when you're 60 years old, right? And that happened. I had dinner with this man. He was number three on the world wealthiest people in the world list. And I was pressing him, are you sure you want to give everything, everything to the foundation, billions and billions, and only half a million to each of your three kids? And he kind of got grumpy with me and he said, that's what I'm going to do. It's a half million more than I started with. And the point was, they can live their lifestyle too. And we probably represent at least 13 or 14 families that are billionaires that have already signed the giving pledge. They're giving away, most are giving away everything. So at a minimum, you have to give away half, but most are giving away everything. One of these guys is in his 70s, and he's working the kind of hours I'm working. He's killing himself, and it's all for us. He's not keeping any of it. It's all going to change the world, which is wonderful to see this guy working so hard at his age, and he's not keeping any of it at all. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. So I think that grooming of the children, training them, making sure they understand money, always have reserve, have a fallback. You know, half of America... If the refrigerator goes out, they're bankrupt in three weeks, right? They have no reserve, no support. Half the population pays almost no taxes whatsoever. About half the population's on the dole, meaning they're either on welfare or they work for the government. So we've got half the population supporting the other half. It's kind of a problem. That's not sustainable over the long haul. And the government keeps growing wildly out of control. So at the end of the day, you're going to have a significant minority supporting the majority, which we already have. The top 1% pays more tax than the bottom 90%. And it's wildly progressive, despite the media portrayals, that it's not. And under the Biden plan, that 40% could go well over 50 immediately if the Biden plan goes through. It's a very interesting time. But family governance is both your actions and you can put in legal structures and techniques that help get you there. They at least try to steer things in the right direction. So it's, you have to almost do everything right because if only 10% makes the third generation, then people like me, the financial planning industry, the banking industry, investment advisors, insurance agents, accountants, nothing we do is working. To make it, you've got to do everything right. So thanks so much, Tom. I think those are some very pragmatic parenting tips as well as uh, planning tips. For our international audience, UGMAs are savings accounts for children where the parents can start them and it's jointly owned by the parent and the child. So you've talked a little bit about inequality. And I just wanted to say as a former State Department diplomat, I take a little bit of issue with being called on the dole for working for the government. So I dispute you there. So you're talking about the tax burden of the richest 1% of citizens in America. At the same time, we know that the portion of total wealth owned by this 1% of population, both in America and around the world, 
has grown significantly, not only during the pandemic, but over the last 30 years. So what's your view on income inequality in America and also in the world as we see this disparity growing? Well, I think anyone who's paying attention knows that it's problematic, right? It sends the wrong signals. We're not trying to go back to the days where the monarchy owned and controlled everything and the rest of us were destitute. That was certainly my family and nobody wants to see that. One of the dilemmas is that the nature of business and wealth is that there's always a distribution curve among almost every population in any country. There's still a distribution curve. The only question is, do you have three huts or half a hut? It's problematic. And when you've got more assets, you have more options. The cost of doing transaction goes down. You have more opportunities. And so it's a built-in problem. It's like people are overtly saying, let the top 1% make more money. Top percent are making more money all over the world in large measure because they have far more opportunities. And by the way, they tend to be hardworking, disciplined, and far more highly educated. It's not an accident, right? So without that education, without that work ethic, without that willingness to take risk, which most people can't, you know, I couldn't start certain kinds of businesses because I had children to feed. And I'm personally not willing to take that chance. So as a lawyer, I'm never going to have the upside. You know, my clients have eight times, 10 times, 20 times, 30 times upside in their business. As a lawyer, I can sell this for a book value or maybe two times net earnings, nothing. Not even close to what it's worth. And that's the nature of being a lawyer. But on the other hand, it's hard to go harder to go under as a lawyer. So I may never have any of the wealth that my clients have. But on the other hand, I've never had that level of risk other than when I started perhaps. I haven't worried about my children being taken care of for a long time. And then that was a trade-off. And the governments have been highly taxing the top 1% in a highly progressive manner. In the US, they're paying 40.3% of all taxes, of all income taxes. And, that, and it's higher than that of overall taxes because the real estate taxes, sales taxes, same thing. Those real estate taxes, the top 10% are paying 90% of those real estate taxes, right? So those are highly skewed. So when you add it all up, despite that onerous taxation that's in many countries confiscatory, it's gone a little too far, it's confiscatory. The top 1% on average have still managed to grow. But again, you pay those taxes. I keep wanting to ask the question, where was the government in the first 20 years when I could have used their help? And the answer was they're nowhere to be found couldn't get a loan, couldn't get an SBA loan, couldn't get any help. Every employee that did something wrong, stole conduct, violated a policy and got fired, filed an unemployment complaint, workers' comp complaint, some other baloney complaint. You've got three government agencies paying for their lawyer out of my tax dollars, and every doubt's being resolved in favor of the employee every single time, even though they're felons, they violated policy, they stole data. And I've dealt with this so many times with my clients. I'm like, is it possible for the business owner to get a fair shake? And of course, he's got to pay his legal fees out of his own money. And the answer is no, he can't get a fair shake. So this vilification of affluence is highly misguided. When you don't think Steve Jobs and Bill Gates changed the world, they changed the world. People in Africa can get medical care now and they bypassed the landlines, right? It went straight to the cells and they did one they changed all of our lives. And those guys are my heroes and they sacrificed. I'm certainly not going to vilify them for taking incredible risks, being geniuses, working at incredible levels. Nobody appreciates those kind of hours. Vilifying those people is badly misguided, but that's what's out there now. If you're wealthy, you got lucky, someone dropped a pot of gold in your backyard, and that's not the case. Again, the data is even in the wealthiest suburbs and towns on the planet, 
less than 10% of those people inherited their money. So in my time, I was the 10% that actually made it there on my own. That's not the case. Everybody made it there on their own. And not that I don't have neighbors that are trust fund babies, but for the most part, people got there, they had their feet on the ground. And the area I grew up in was not such a great area, understating it. When we first moved to town, I was the youngest person living in my town who wasn't living with his parents. And so we were the novel. We got invited to all the parties, big premier Chicago families that are known around the world that we had nothing in common with other than shoveling their driveway and, and cleaning their house. And these people were lovely. And at one of the first parties, a woman came up and she was the number two person at a huge venture capital firm. Her husband was the president of a major global bank. The other guy was the president of a giant pharmaceutical company, global pharmaceutical company. He was from Australia. And his wife worked for him at that company. And the two wives came up to me and they lived like two days away from me. And they said, we understand you're a closet South Sider, which in Chicago, you're kind of looked down upon. And they said, we're from Harvey. And I said, oh my gosh, our town was bad, but we looked down on you people. So I just kind of chuckled and they were being making a joke about the whole thing. But that was the case. My fear is that if we can't equalize things fairly, it just becomes a problem. It causes social unrest, causes a lot. On the other hand, having the number of people in the US that are on welfare is insanity. It's just insanity. All these people that can work that aren't working is just inexcusable. That makes no sense. So you've got problems at both ends of the extreme. And these people are being told that it's somebody else's fault. It's not somebody else's fault. I went to those high schools. I know what it's, I went to high school with a thousand black kids. Don't tell me I don't know what it's like. I know exactly what it's like. When you don't do your homework, you don't show up for class, you commit crimes, you join a gang, bad things happen. I got in those fights. I had loaded guns pulled on me twice. I had a stiletto thrown into my foot during gym class. Lots of fights, lots of dangerous fights where you could have gotten killed. People had bats and tire irons and chains. Not a great spot to be. So you've got problems on both ends. Telling people that they're victims when I don't believe they are victims is a mistake. And telling people everything in the world is their fault for working like dogs and becoming wealthy, that's wrong too. It is wrong on both sides of the equation. I don't believe in the blame game. I believe in accountability. And this is simply a mistake, but it needs to be solved. But the, the idea of paying people more in welfare, ADC and food stamps than, they could, than the average American family makes working is insanity, completely upside down. And those people, by the way, that group, over half of that group own a vehicle, live in a home with 2.1 bedrooms, have a smartphone, a flat screen TV. Over half that population, they've never worked a day in their lives, but it gets better. That population off of our welfare is in the top 10% of the wealthiest people on planet earth, having never worked a day in their lives. That is insanity. I have no patience for that. That was my family, except we worked and we were in a worse boat than these people are now. So is that the solution? No. I love the Civilian Conservation Corps idea and these national service initiatives. When you get out, you do three years of government work. You can work for the Peace Corps, Habitat for Humanity, Civilian Conservation Corps, a number of other things, or any one of the five military, but you do three years of service for very low pay. And you realize it's not just about you. There's other people. It would be great training. We'd be a far better country if we did it and would help solve that lower end problem. And I'd like to sell the problem of vilifying the affluent. And when you tell the truth, only 10% of those people inherited their money. Everybody else worked to get that money. And it's not because they were lucky. Inordinately, they study hard. They work, they've been working hard their whole lives. So what I resent is in grammar school, I studied 
my buckets off because I was afraid I wouldn't get to college. I hardly got a darn B and I never missed a day of grammar school, not a single day. And I played three sports and I went to high school. I played three sports. I worked two jobs all through high school. I never stopped working. I worked all through college. I worked full-time all through law school and I've been working hard my whole life. And I get the, well, oh, right place, right time. Oh, you got lucky. Everybody will say anything other than you earned it. You worked it. You worked that hard. You are that smart. You went to school for 22 years. No one will say that. So this, it grows on trees concept. People then miss the connection to what it takes to get out. And what it takes to get out from lower, lower classes, either you need education or you need both parents working. And if there's only one parent there, you're in a bad spot because now you can't afford the education. You can't take on two or three jobs. You got to take care of the kids. So the minute you lose the household, and Black Lives Matter calls it Western patriarchy. It's actually Eastern patriarchy. This concept is far better established in the East than it is in the West. Like it didn't even get that right. But getting rid of the quote Western patriarchy, how can we have fewer fathers in black families? The data shows, depending on whose study you believe, from 72 to 78% of black kids grow up in a single parent household, usually the mom or the grandmother, and the fathers aren't part of the deal. How do you break out when you're not there? How do you break out when you don't go to class and don't do your My son teaches in an inner city school. There's not a single white student in the school. There's two white teachers out of 43 teachers and administrators. If you can't engage the kids because they don't want to show up or they don't do the homework, then they just pass them along anyway. If you get a zero, they give them 50%. Why would you give someone up 50% for not turning in a paper? They get a zero. And they're discouraging my son from flunking these kids. I'm like, if they deserve to flunk, you're better off flunking them. So by the time they graduate high school, they're actually capable of holding a job. So making excuses occurs on both ends of the spectrum. It's not about these wealthy people are getting there and the government's not. The government's taking as much and they keep taking more. So in the States, the percentage of income of tax paid by the top 1% on average has gone up every single year. There's a few bumps. Little Overall, the trend is crystal clear. It's going up. I don't think it's ever going to go down. So it's not like the governments have been trying to do their part, but it causes social unrest. You shouldn't have people starving, right? That's just the reality. But in the U.S., between welfare and ADC and food stamps, you can make $50,000 a year without working. That's a pretty good gig. Do I think it should be that amount? Absolutely not. I think you should be working. I think they should be working for the government, cleaning up parks. There's plenty of things that the government can't get to. They could do that. And then they'd be empowered instead of having to stay on the welfare line, which is an experience I will never have. I would starve to death before taking a penny from the government, at least in terms of welfare, something like that. Some members of my family got PPP you know, checks. I'm like, wow, never thought that would happen, nor should we have gotten them. I certainly didn't get one. So, Tom, we have a very international audience. So many of our entrepreneurs are doing exactly what you did, kind of the hard path to starting a business full of risk, trying to borrow money, not able to access it in poor countries. What advice would you give those ambitious young people in poor countries to help them along the path to achieve the economic and professional success that you have achieved? Unfortunately, there isn't always a correlation between effort, hard work, and success. So it is elusive. Of the 25 largest law firms, Chicago, which are all global firms, when I started, only seven or eight are still alive. All the others went bankrupt, went under, didn't merge, blew up. And two of the ones that survived, somebody merged with them and saved them. So even firms that are hundreds of year old, one firm had Abraham Lincoln's name in it, right? How do you go under in Illinois, the land of Lincoln, consistently one of the most 
powerful and highly rated presidents by the American population. How do you go under in Illinois with the name Lincoln in your firm name? And they managed to do it. So it's unfortunate, but even at that level, nothing less is very difficult. But I would say the rules are pretty clear. You have to have integrity. If people don't trust you, they're not going to do business with you, or they'll do business once and you'll never hear from them or see them again. And I think the work ethic is critical. You need to have a plan. You have a written plan, have an exit plan, think about what you're doing, constantly reevaluate. And that work ethic has to just continue the entire time. And if you do become successful, appreciate it. Don't spend it irresponsibly. Don't do dumb things with it. Don't take risks you don't need to take. Think of the stewardship concept. Think of your employees, take care of them, and they'll take care of you if you possibly can. But it's be persistent and never give up. W. Clement Stone died a billionaire, and I would see him at different charity functions. He was always very dapper, and he went under three times. So he lost three businesses before he became a billionaire, but he lived a great life. He certainly had very difficult years and he had fabulous years. And I think that's what you have to prepare for if you're going to be an entrepreneur, but you have to persevere and never, ever give up. So I'd say that's probably the biggest thing is persistence across the board. And if there was one thing you could do to make the world better, having this really essentially rags to riches story yourself in the United States, but also having that determination and commitment to service and giving back, what would it be? Well, first I'll say, Rags to riches is probably not fair. I was never in rags, but I know what you meant. From modest to less modest, I will say. I think that education is the key to almost everything. And that when people are educated, they are empowered and they can make the right decisions. They can be the captains of their own fate, so to speak. And I think with education, there's less misunderstanding, fewer wars, fewer problems, and people who have the ability to solve problems. And so my hope is that blinders are taken off and people have the opportunity to learn. They're much more likely to be empowered, have a positive effect on the world and their families and everyone else around us. And I think that solves an awful lot of ills in the world today. Thank you, Tom. So we are committed to having a diversity of voices on this podcast. So we are especially grateful that you came to share your perspective of where you started, how you started your business, how hard it was to build it, how hard you continue to work, and your views on taxation and wealth and affluence, which are not things that we hear very often here at the United Nations. So thank you so much for coming to share your opinions and your expertise with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to our audience for joining us on UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org. If you found this episode useful, please spread the word on Twitter, hashtag Capital Musings, or leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews help new listeners discover our podcast. So if you enjoyed listening, please leave a review. Thanks, and until next time.